teaching a day-long retreat. That's Sunday, December 22nd. And this is something I've been teaching this particular day-long for several years at this time of year. It's called The Gift of Recovery, A Day for Healing. Uh, there are some flyers uh, for it. But I'm going to read a little bit of my lovely text here for you to get the idea. This time of year is especially challenging for people who have struggled with addictions to drugs, alcohol, food, and painful family relationships. Memories of holidays past can trigger destructive behaviors and wasteful spending. The stress of expectations can be an emotional drain. This day provides a respite from the holidays using Buddhist mindfulness, forgiveness, and loving-kindness practices as healing tools for people in recovery. So, come. That's from 9.30 to 4.30 on the 22nd. And um, a couple other day-longs that are coming up. Howie Cohn, a wonderful, really charming uh, Dharma teacher who's been part of Spirit Rock since its inception, is teaching Introduction to Insight Meditation January 4th, Saturday the 4th. So if you're a, a beginner and you want to get, get going, uh, that'd be a really good day for you. Um, this is interesting. Uh, James Barris and Aaron Sullivan on uh, the January 18th, Feeding Your Demons, Transforming Our Suffering into Compassion. It's a really interesting practice. It comes out of the Tibetan tradition um, about really uh, kind of bringing out of the shadows the, 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 um, the parts of us that we kind of don't accept and, and trying, to, trying to include them in our, in our uh, selves. And this says, Donna. <laughs> That's uh, Katie reminding me to tell you that I am supported only by your donations. So uh, please fill the basket uh, before you leave as best you can. I got a quick Okay, announcement. Um, tomorrow, Joseph Goldstein is one of the teachers who's part of um, the Insight Meditations. I think it's Insight Meditations. Yes, in, IMS, in, uh, Massachusetts. In, in Massachusetts. He's visiting tomorrow, and he's going to be speaking in San Francisco. If you haven't heard uh, him, which I haven't, he's oh, supposed really, to yeah. be a really amazing teacher. And Great Jack teacher. Jack Cornfield and him are, were, you know, Long-time friends. And yeah, he sort of started the center on the East Coast while Jack came out here and started. Well, he and Jack and Sharon Salzberg started Insight Meditation okay. Society in 1976 in Western Mass, and and then eventually in their 80s, Jack moved out here and started Spirit Rock. So they've been, and they started teaching together in 1974 at Naropa and Boulder and. Uh, Joseph is is a brilliant teacher and really he was one of my first teachers and uh, yeah if you should go see him yeah. where where is it going to be do you it's, know um, you have to look on the web okay but, it, but they do there might be a few spaces available if you're interested it's, it's a very special teacher. yeah and and Joseph has a new book out which is is called mindfulness a practical guide to awakening I think and um, and I've just started reading it it's it's really his magnum opus, I think. Um, and he's, he's written a lot of good books, but this is like, he's taking the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the foundation text of Theravadan Buddhism, and he's going through it line by line and uh, expanding on it in the way that uh, only Joseph can. And it's, it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful book. And 
uh, I'm sure that that's probably why he's out here, probably you know promoting and, and the book. But uh, yeah, that's great. So he's speaking at um, I believe it's 7 p.m. in San Francisco, and if you go to the Spirit Rock website, I believe there would be a link. To mm -hmm. and the other thing is, is on Sunday, um, Kevin mentioned Rick Hansen. Rick Hansen will yeah. be here oh, yeah. on Sunday leading it. <coughs> Oh, and I, I, I forget, um, it's funny, I was at his group the other night, but I forget. Anyway. The topic. The topic. Yeah, but, but it's, it's always. It'll be Rick Hansen, which is, you know, basically working with um, neurochemistry and mindfulness. Yeah. And bringing those two worlds together, which is really fascinating. It's, it is fascinating. It's just, it's, he's such a positive teacher. Yeah. You will get so much from being just in the room of the yeah. guy. He's really different from me. He's like really upbeat, he's you know. Upbeat. He's upbeat and he's just Mr. Happy Guy. Yeah, I know. It's depressing. Like, for, <laughs> <but> <laughs> I'm going to help you privately, okay? Yeah, so, thanks. Okay, yeah. But, but here's the thing. For every, you know, it takes five seconds for a negative neural pathway to build. It takes 20 seconds for a positive one to build. So just I haven't got that kind of time. I know. <laughs> <laughs> you know we're going to work on that. Okay? Yeah. You've got to teach less. Okay? Yeah, okay. <laughs> anyway, think about that in a positive way. For 20 seconds. All right. Right. Starting <laughs> now. Yeah, then you've got a neural pathway and you're happy, okay? All right. There was another hand back there. Wow, we've got hands all over the place. This question is about five months too late. Oh. I, I did the drive for the first time up Highway 1 through Big Sur. It's stunning. Yes. And you mentioned you have a course in, at Escalon. Is it as, Escalon. Yeah, is it as beautiful as it like driving by? Yes. And I'm going to be there not next December. They just booked me for next December. Uh, yes, it's, Esalen is stunning. It's, it's beautiful. And, uh, you know, you're right on the cliffs there. And then they have the natural hot springs with the tubs down, the, you know, on the cliffs. And you're just sitting up there and the waves are crashing below. And uh, it's, it's a fantastic place. Yeah. Next December. I'll market that next November. <laughs> well, there was another hand back up here. Did you have something else you needed oh, to say? I was going to refer to him when he said that the speaker for the neurological, something that you won't find on a nap. In a nap? An app on iPhones. Oh, on an app. Yes, right. That's, that's true. Although they're working on it. So, you know. Well, you know, I, I uh, wanted to talk today tonight about, um, I, I was thinking, it's sort of like a year-end review, but even more of that, a decade of review, because um, I realized that, um, you know, I've been, my first book, One Breath at a Time, came out in June of uh, 2004. And so it's, and, and I first started teaching here at Spirit Rock on this topic in 2003. So it's been a decade that I've been doing this work. And when I, when I first um, started to teach along these lines, um, there was a sense of being something of a pioneer. I mean, I, I felt that I was uh, kind of um, on the edge of the Dharma scene, sometimes falling right off the edge of the Dharma scene, not, not always embraced, sometimes seen as a... As a something that didn't quite fit, 
here, and, and even there were some centers when I offered my services, said they didn't really think that they needed this sort of thing, you know, the, these kind of people coming to their center. There was, and and I, I was, would be, you know, have to inform them that they, they were already there. They just, <laughs> they just didn't know it. And so, um, and, um, you know, so if we can call this a movement, uh, it should be nice. Uh, the Buddhist recovery movement, if, if, we, if that's not too grandiose an idea, I, I think it's interesting to trace what's happened over this decade somewhat and, um, and maybe look at where we are with that. Because I, I was actually being interviewed uh, today by a journalist, a graduate student journalist in, in New York. And one of the things that kind of came up in the conversation was how uh, my experience was that, you know, I practiced Buddhist meditation before I got sober. And, um, you know, it, it didn't get me sober, right? It wasn't a program for me. And then I found AA, you know, I, I don't write that down because that's breaking your anonymity, whatever. But I say it, you know, in groups, you know. so. So I started to go to AA, and that was when you know, my life really started to change, and I was able to stay sober. And and of, but after I was sober for five or six years, then I started to kind of question the the traditional language of AA and try to blend it more with Buddhism. And. You know, that's over 20 years ago that that process even started. So it's been a long journey for me. So I have typically said, well, I, you know, I don't feel like Buddhism is a recovery path, which it's not, that's not how it was designed as a, a treatment for addiction. Uh, so I, um, I kind of have steered people away from trying to just be str strictly use Buddhism, I've steered them towards, you know, you should go to a 12-step program because that's what those are for. They're built for, for treating addiction. But when I got sober, there wasn't any Buddhist recovery movement. <laughs> so there was no way to even conceive that or to approach it that way. And, and that's changed. No, and and there is a Buddhist recovery movement now. So so I'm not uh, as vehemently. Uh, uh, I guess I don't feel as strongly that Buddhism can't be a recovery program for some people. And that's that's certainly what um, Noah Levine is starting to offer in his Refuge Recovery. And and so uh, you know that that's kind of an interesting place for me to be because I you know I'm. I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I don't go to a lot of meetings. I don't depend on it like the way I did 28 years ago, or even how I, the, how I did even 15 years ago. But but it's still an important part of my life, and something that um, I feel it would be really um, a betrayal on my part to turn away from that and to say that that's. To, to try to uh, uh, undermine that. Uh, a great 
greatly, I'm grateful and for and love uh, the 12-step world. Um, but it's interesting that now that you know because this this woman asked me she, she said something like so so you think you have to do the twelve steps to get sober? And I said no, I don't think that. In fact, I, you know, I, the what I think determines someone's success in recovery is the strength of their uh, what we call in Buddhism intention, the strength of their commitment strength of that decision that they need to do this. And so the one of the cliches in the 12-step world is the people who make it are the ones who want it, not the ones who need it. Right? So it's not how bad your bottom was, because right? we've seen lots of people hit unbelievable bottoms who kept going. But it's your determination to change. And, and so that's, that determination isn't affiliated with any particular program or any particular path. Uh, so I'm not, I don't, I don't mean to sound, be, I'm not trying to say something uh, radical or, or even a negative about uh, the 12-step world. Because um, uh, I still think that um, the thing that's special about the 12 steps in terms of recovery is that they're designed for addiction. You, if you want to use Buddhism as a recovery program, you have to redesign it a little bit, right? And tweak it in ways. Whereas to understand the 12 steps from a Buddhist viewpoint, you have to redesign the 12 steps. So, uh, uh, boy, I don't know where I'm going, but I, I'm going to get somewhere. So, I just thought I brought along some uh, of the books that have come out in the past 10 years. And some of them, actually, this one came out before the last 10 years. This was originally called Cool Water. They changed the name to Ordinary Recovery and got me to write a foreword. But it was uh, published before I published anything, published in uh, 1997, William Alexander, a.k.a. Bill Alexander. So this was one of the first books. This was actually the second book I read that was about B Buddhism and recovery. The first one was called Zen, The Zen of Recovery, which came out in about 1993 and um, didn't really spark too much, but it was except like, wow, somebody's talking about this idea. And then Cool Water slash Ordinary Recovery came out. Um, I think the next one that came out after my book was 12 Steps on Buddha's Path. This is the, I guess this is the regular edition of it. And the thing I particularly like about this book is the way she talks about, uh, this is by, well, it's written anonymously, the woman, she calls herself Laura S. Um, but she does a nice piece on dependent origination and recovery, which uh, is actually what uh, Ajahn Amaro talks about. Um, then we have the 12-step Buddhist, Darren Littlejohn. And this book I particularly like, Mindfulness and the 12 Steps. 
by Therese Jacob Stewart. Um, <coughs> this is on Hazelden, so it's you know more of a got some more of a recovery uh, imprimatur, whatever that means. Um, that's a nice book. This one, this one is the breath of surrender, a collection of recovery-oriented haiku. I used to read from this a bit. Um, you can see that I marked a lot of pages. See if I can find a good one because I, I like these. Thirty days clean. Somebody told me to bring home flowers for myself. Ex-junkie, two bags in his teacup. Some people get that. Cold Sunday morning, making a fearless moral inventory full of fear. That's nice. It's really beautiful. So, uh, and then that was Robert Epstein. And, you know, I think it might... It says the M-E-T press, but you know, that's really a valuable one. And then this one, mindfulness-based relapse prevention for addictive behaviors. <laughs> yeah, now you know we're getting serious. This is from the Guilford Press. And Alan Marlat, wonderful uh, addiction researcher. And, and, and you know, I've worked with these people um, a bit. I got to blurb their book. and. Um, you know, they're coming from a whole other place, from a research place. They were at the University of Washington. Alan has since passed away, um, but uh, his co-writers continue on that work. So, so yeah, um, I mean, I, th I think my first book, One Breath at a Time, was the, the first one that got a lot of attention. And... Um, and it was really interesting to me when the book came out. One of the one of the there were a couple of events that really stand out in my mind. Um, I went to um, Boulder, Colorado, big center of Buddhism, to the bookstore there, Boulder Books, and the, there was a line out the door to, for me to sign books. And I was there for about two hours signing books, and they were they wound up taking the books out of the window. You know, they, they sold every book they had in the store. And, you know, it wasn't, nobody would read the book, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, they were buying it because of the title. And they don't, didn't know about me. And, and that, I, that was inspiring to me because it, it was helpful. Because it, I, right away I knew it wasn't, this wasn't about me. It was about this idea that there was this hunger for this idea. The, the, something similar happened in Minneapolis where the Dharma Center was so full that uh, they tried to stop people from coming in, you know. And people were just like, well, just stand in the back, you know. Standing room only for a Dharma talk, you know. Um, and so there, there was obviously such a hunger for this. Uh, and uh, that's not about individuals. That's about that's about something that there was really a need for, and so we've really seen this grow. So, so I've seen myself, my role, as both a leader and a follower. A follower in the sense of trying to sense what is it that people need, you know, and, and I mean, I, 
I recognized in my own Dharma teaching before I started to teach about recovery explicitly, I, I, people started to come up and ask me about it because I would kind of mention it in passing or I would mention some connection. And people started to ask me for it. So when I wrote my first book, it was me following what people were already kind of asking for. And then, in a sense, leading, because I started to really develop ideas that I don't think many people had developed as far as I was developing them. In 2007, uh, I got an email from someone in Australia named Paul St. Tillon. And Paul had a website called Buddhist Recovery. And, and the website was him and his friend Michael who would review books that they thought were kind of related to Buddhism and recovery. So, of course, my book was on there and, and some of Jack Kornfield's books were there and maybe Pema, Children, and things like that, and, and Bill Alexander, and whatever came out. And, and Paul contacted me and said, do you think there, that there, it would be useful to start some kind of an organization, a Buddhist recovery organization? And I said, sure, why not, you know? what do you want to do? And he was like, well, who do you think should be part of it? So I gave him Alan Moilat's name and Noah Levine's name and um, uh, those, I don't know if I put him in, those are the two people that I remember putting him in touch with and, and um, we, in January of 2008, we met at Cannon Beach, Oregon and, uh, and formed this organization, the Buddhist Recovery Network. So that was almost four years after One Breath at a Time came out. And um, that organization has not exactly flowered. It survived. Um, we had a, one conference in 2009, which was very successful, except that we lost money. And we didn't really, weren't really in a position. We've never really been in a position to do do another one. When we tried to do another conference, not enough people registered and we canceled it. But the, the website, BuddhistRecovery.org, which has been transformed into the organization's website, uh, is the site of uh, most usefully a list of all the meetings that we know of, all the Buddhist recovery meetings, because what a natural outgrowth of this so-called movement was that people started having meetings. Right? And well, you know, I want, to get, I want to stay sober, and what we do in, for sobriety is that we meet, we get together. It's not enough we don't just read books or meditate or go on retreats. We want to get together as a community. Uh, and so we, li we have meetings listed from a, a variety of countries and many different states in the U.S. on that. Uh, and, the, and there are... Uh, new meetings sprouting up all the time. And um, so this idea of a Buddhist recovery meeting sort of came about and people started asking, well, what does that mean? What, you know, what do we do? How, how is that different? And that's why we have this preamble trying to define, well, what is, what's a Buddhist recovery meeting and how is it different from an AA meeting and what's its purpose, what's its goal? And so I think a lot of that is... is delineated in that, uh, that preamble I read before. Um, 
And now, as I say, Noah Levine is, uh, he's writing a book called Refuge Recovery, and that's what he's uh, named his uh, groups that they have at his center in L.A. and that now we have in the Bay Area as well. Um, and, and they are explicitly non-12-step, whereas most of my work has been Buddhist 12-step. Um, and we'll see, you know, how that, uh, that goes. I, I think that, once again, there's a, a big uh, hunger for this. You know, there's still, you know, one of the persistent themes in my own work has been people's struggles with the 12-step language and with the 12 steps itself and with the program and those people, as they say. Um, and this is, again, a place where you know, my second book, which is about higher power, a burning desire, um, was me following what I thought people were struggling with and trying to help people to deal with that language. And again, I feel as if I was also being a leader by, by taking on that question in a very, uh, for me, very engaged and very sincere way uh, that, uh, that I tried to be very creative with that. And, and one of the things that I said to this woman today and I've said to other people is that people's struggle with the word God is somewhat of a lack of imagination, a lack of creativity. The word God uh, is quite useful and, and can be meaningful. But if we allow one very narrow and really radical definition of it, to uh, limit our view. So that radical and limited and actually ahistorical definition that's been adopted by the uh, hardcore evangelicals in our country um, has kind of spoiled it for the rest of us. You know, and that, that I, I, one of the reasons that I insist on the, on, <laughs> keeping that word part of the recovery process is my own stubbornness <laughs> that I'm not willing to seed the C-E-D-E <laughs> the uh, definition of the word God to a radical minority. Uh, and if you look at any kind of uh, you know, theology historically, uh, there, no serious spiritual religious person considered God to be uh, the, the kind of, um, you know, personally intervening being that you just said words to and then did, he did the stuff that you wanted and then he would tell you what to do, that, that this kind of... Uh, uh, community point, tries to claim that God is. I can, you can see once again that, that I'm angry about this because I, I felt this way this afternoon and I feel the same way now. Um, that's you know, one, of the, one of the reasons why I, I think that you know, it kind of leads me to there have been people who have come along who have tried to rewrite the 12 steps and so that they could get rid of the word God and make the, make the 12 steps more Buddhist. And they become so convoluted 
that it's painful, you know. It's like, just, you know, it's like it loses all the sort of rhythm and poetry of the language and the sort of sense of it. And it becomes this kind of, like, I guess, politically correct, you know, language. It's like, oh, you're giving me a headache. Why not just realize that language is uh, mutable? Language changes. Language means what we say it means, you know. Thanks to Orwell, we know that, right? And it, uh, so God has had many different meanings historically. Zeus was God, you know. Zeus was a God. Not a lot of people believe in Zeus anymore. But they don't say, oh, well, we've got to get rid of the word God because Zeus doesn't. We know Zeus doesn't exist. You know, that's... Well, I know, that's, Wes has a great riff on that, you know, he talks about all the... So, for me, you know, to say that the Dharma is a definition of God makes perfect sense for me. And, you know, you, yeah, it takes a little explanation to get there, but um, once you get there, it makes sense. I mean, the Dharma is expression of power and of wisdom, of presence. It's like, well, what's God? You know, And the Dharma is an expression of love. It's like I got all the components that we uh, give to God. So uh, anyway, uh, I got stuck there. Let me move off God. So two, or, two words, inquiring mind this month. And, you know, that, oh, yeah, that's that right. Really yeah, they have that issue on, yeah. on God, yeah. yeah. Um, so... So where I am now, just to kind of bring this back to this idea of leading and following it, is past, uh, you know, um, one of the things that people have asked me for over time was uh, some kind of a workbook. And I tried to do that, and I couldn't do it. And I worked for a couple of years, and actually, and, and I don't know, I'm, I'm thinking about putting this out. This is it. It's, it's actually not as bad as I thought it was. Um, and I'm, I may put it out as a self-published kind of download thing. Um, I've even thought about trying to work through the workbook next year in this class and have people you know, get the workbook and we could do it together. It sounds like a lot of work, though that's the only trouble. <laughs> I mean, Are you going to pay me? Or? Uh, see, I need an assistant, so... I'll give you uh, royalties on the book for all, all the copies. So. I'll, I'll talk to my agent. Okay, I'll have my, your agent talk to my agent. But um, this past spring, I was teaching a retreat at Omega Institute in upstate New York. And as with many of my retreats, there was um, a real sense of insight and awakening for people and really seeing things and letting go. And it got to a point after a few days of kind of a heaviness too. And I felt that people were kind of missing some key component, which you could call joy uh, or you know, lightness in their recovery. That, and, and it really it kind of brought up for me how 
the recovery can become this burdensome task. Uh, this idea that, uh, you know, even the 10th step that we uh, continued to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it, can become this kind of, uh, you know, uh, closed circuit TV watching you to make sure that, you know, reporting on whether you did something wrong. You know, sort of, uh, you know, you have to watch yourself. You were talking about the watcher, but like this kind of like paranoid watcher, you know, like big brother is watching you. Watch it. Oh, you did something wrong. You have to go quick, make amends. And uh, which obviously that's valuable. But the but the idea that we're flawed and that we have to we have these character defects and we've got to constantly be on guard against them can become this kind of burden, as I said. And I don't think that's what recovery is about. I mean, I think if you're not, you know, doing regular harm to yourself or others, and you're not acting on your addiction, then you're, you basically have the recovery thing, you know, the basics, you're okay. So now, how about enjoying yourself? <laughs> Because, you know, just not doing the wrong thing isn't enough to make life worth living. And so that inspired me to start thinking about doing a book on, on finding joy in recovery. And um, as soon as I got that idea, I felt happier, you know. And I found that the, the words kind of spilled out. Whereas the workbook had been work, this was just kind of joy. And I wrote the 40 or 50 pages, gave it to my agent. She was like, I love this. <laughs> she gave it to a couple publishers. They were like, we love this. And, you know, now I have a new publisher and a new book. The new book is not finished, of course, but, uh, but it's in process. And... Um, so that's sort of, again, my, uh, I'm hoping that I'm going to be able to lead people <laughs> in my teaching um, into more joy in recovery. But um, I will say that, well, uh, if, if many of you have been to enough of my talks to be used to me being pretty honest about my, what's going on with me. Uh, I was disappointed that my second book didn't really get a lot of uh, response. I mean, the people who have read it have been very positive about it. But One Breath at a Time is still outselling it by about five, five-fold. Um, and... Uh, you know, I kind of wonder if that first thing, that the first reason that people came to the bookstore in Boulder and the Dharma talk in Minneapolis is still really all that people want, which is okay. You know, they just want Buddhism and the Twelve Steps, or they want Buddhist recovery, and uh, and maybe I'm just trying too hard <laughs> to drag people along with me. Well, you should look at this. No, you should do this. Or maybe I'm just like to write books. I don't know. Well, I do like to write books. But um, 
But I, you know, I continue to do this work because I do have a, a great love of these ideas and a great love of these practices, the teachings, uh, the Buddhist teachings, the recovery and 12-step teachings. And I find them uh, to continue to reveal things, that we can really uh, have a, a depths of, of uh, wisdom within them. And, uh, and I also love to just um, meet people where they are whether they're new, like tomorrow I'll be going to a treatment center as I do once a month and, and talking to people who are, you know, a week clean. And then, you know, next week I'll be back here and teaching for the people who are ranging from, you know, short-term to very long-term recovery. And um, all the, all the um, kind of questions and issues that come up at those different stages. Uh, I find all of that very rich personally, so it's okay. But I do think, coming back to this idea of joy, that um, that it's a little that it is overlooked a bit. That it's not enough to just remove the addiction from our lives. That and that we have to bring some intentionality to finding happiness, that it's not, that, you know, as I say, just by removing the drugs and alcohol, that doesn't fix our problems, and it doesn't necessarily make us happy. Um, There's a lot uh, more, I think, and I don't think recovery is just not acting on addictive behaviors. When I, when I look at recovery, it's got these, a variety of components that are related to finding happiness. So the first component is the giving up. And that in itself is a fundamental Buddhist principle, that when we let go, that's where freedom lies. So giving up is a, is a huge step and a huge spiritual awakening, if you will. Along with that, though, comes a broader uh, um, transformation in terms of our behavior, in terms of becoming, starting to live a more moral life, which is, again, a foundation principle of Buddhism called sila. And so it's not that we just, it's not just that we stop drinking and using, we also stop stealing, harming others with our sexuality, lying, violence, all the rest of it, right? So there's a broad-ranging morality that is part of recovery that's sometimes unrecognized as being, you know, I think from the outside, from people who don't know anything about the recovery world, they don't realize that this is all part of it because if we keep cheating and lying and stealing, that's, those are just triggers for us. That's all part of that lifestyle and all of that has to change. And a certain happiness comes when we're living the right way. Another another component of recovery and of happiness is our relationships, be they uh, social relationships, intimate relationships, 
professional relationships, spiritual relationships with a sponsor or a teacher or a therapist. And all of these levels of relationship need work and healing if we want to be in recovery and if we want to be happy. So this is another aspect of this process. And what, what I'm doing right now is I'm actually telling the outline of my new book, <laughs> by the way. So another component of recovery and of happiness is finding work or some way of being, some engagement in the world that brings us satisfaction as well as some financial security. Um, many of us go back to school in recovery or change careers uh, or find a way to make our career meaningful. You know, it was interesting to me when I... Uh, when I finished graduate school and I was kind of looking for work and I, I went to um, some uh, like uh, career, a career counseling workshop in, in the city, San Francisco. It's alumni resources, you might know it. And it was really interesting that many of the people in those workshops were lawyers who were trying to change, get out of doing what they were doing. You know, they got into law because they thought it would be interesting and because, of course, they thought they could make a lot of money. And at a certain point, they just couldn't do it anymore because it just wasn't satisfying to them. So work. Um, and finally, uh, not, maybe not finally, but you know, the, another piece that I think is so important in, in recovery and in finding happiness is doing things that we just like to do. You know, it's when you're an addict, you know, the only thing you, way you know to have fun is to party, you know. Now, when was the last time that taking drugs and getting drunk was really a party for you, you know? For most of us, it stopped being a party a long time ago. But we forgot how to, how do I actually have fun? What do, is there something I like to do that doesn't involve that? And, and for me, and I think for many of us, one way to figure that out is to kind of, what did I like to do when I was a kid? You know, maybe it was skiing, or it was chess, or it was golf, or that would be ridiculous. But, you know, we find something, and we go back to something simpler and easy, and realize, oh, you know, I want to take, uh, you know, salsa dance, uh, you know, whatever it is, it's like, oh, you know, the things that when you're loaded, it's like, ah, you know, those people, you know, it's like, no, I'm just going to go do it, you know what I mean? We learn to do that in recovery because we're not so protective of our egos. It's okay, I don't have to be cool, I can, you know, dress up funny and go put on a costume for Halloween or whatever, you know, we, we find ways to just have fun, um, and that we don't have to impress anybody, and, and uh, so all of this is part of Recovery, and it's part of finding joy. Uh, so, I've managed to use up most of the time. And, uh, you know, this is typically I, uh, I talk about um, the step of the month. And, uh, I said, you know, step, this would have been step 12. And, uh, of course, I've been doing this class for many years, and so... You know, uh, let's uh, say the same thing a lot. Uh, but I did, I got out uh, an essay of Jack Cornfield's called Enlightenments. 
today because I thought, well, maybe I'll talk about spiritual awakening and talk about enlightenment. This was before I decided that I was going to do what I did. And I started reading it. And I thought, okay, well, maybe what I can do is like, because what he does is he talks about these different types of enlightenment, these different definitions and ways of understanding. And I thought, okay, maybe I can correlate those with different aspects of recovery and we can make this nice little thing. I started reading and I was like, no, it's too confusing. And I just closed it. it was, it's actually a beautiful article. It's in his book called um, Bringing the Light of Wisdom. Yeah, I, think it's, I think that's the title. And I'm sure they have it in there. It's a little book with a bunch of essays. One of them actually is called something like Sex, Drugs, and Gurus, something like that. So you'll want to check that out. But, uh, and it's, it is a really interesting piece, but I just couldn't quite like, make it work. you know. Because, uh, but the main thing that I get from that is that the idea of spiritual awakening or enlightenment is a very open idea. And, and I think that's another way that we can open up the 12 steps to not sort of say, oh, spiritual awakening is this, and sort of we have some idea of it as some bliss state, or it means uh, that I'm really nice all the time, or something. I don't know what it would be for you, but... Um, but that uh, these different traditions, it's, re- it's really wide open. And, and that's helped me to understand uh, spiritual awakening in terms of the 12 steps and see that, as I like to say, step one was the biggest spiritual awakening of my life. Um, so that kind of uses up all our time. So I'm sorry I didn't leave time for people to ask questions, but you kind of asked questions before I started talking, so just sort of backwards. That's okay. Let's, let's just close with a, a dedication of merit. In this decade of Buddhist recovery, Many of us have been engaged in this process for years. And we can see that when we engage in our own inner work, we are actually helping to change the world. When we become a part of a community and a movement, We help many other people as well as ourselves. In the 12 steps, we say that we'll carry the message when we have a spiritual awakening. In Buddhism, we say that we share the merit of our spiritual practice. So in that spirit, in those two spirits, we offer any benefit that comes from our practice together this evening and this decade to the awakening of all beings. May all beings be free from the suffering of addictive behaviors. May all beings find their joy in recovery. 
So thank you very much for coming in. Hope I see you on the 22nd. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.